Good to have a seat, everyone. We move into our teaching time, and today is, um, uh, well, it's meaty. Uh, I don't think it's difficult, but I think it's meaty. And so we're working through here for a few weeks, um, new to the faith, like discovering that sort of recognition of God, that coming to faith, and the various things that have to happen. Uh, through that. And of course, you old-timers in the faith, you'll probably be like, well, I still have some of those same exact thoughts. I, you know, you know, what's that mean? Like, I don't know what that means. I think that means you're just like me. So, um, and today we're dealing with really the core of it. We're dealing with doubts and assurance of how do you know, um, well, that there is God? How do you know that there is eternal hope? All of that. Now, of course, you know, in 30 minutes, we're not going to get all of that done. But um, I think it's a conversation starter. And so that's really where we're at this morning on this. So um, let's just begin then with this idea that every healthy Christian doubts. Every healthy Christian doubts. As was told to me when I was about 20 years old by an old uh, priest, and he said, you know, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. And I thought it was kind of a dumb saying, but I can't seem to shake it, that ants, you know, uh, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. And I think, I just keep thinking about that. I'm like, I guess that's kind of true. Somehow it energizes us having doubts. It keeps us on a journey. And every healthy Christian arrives at some assurance of faith that they stake their eternal life on, that redirects their entire life now, that makes for moral choices, develops their character, their ethics, even their politics, all get determined by these sort of large schemes about what we believe. So if you're with us this morning and you find yourself doubting or questioning the existence of God or whether or not God can hear and respond to you, uh, then you're not alone. I have some of those same things, and I think many of us around here as well do. And I think Lakeland uh, has a little bit of fame for the idea of, like, you, everyone is welcome and everyone can come. We don't have sort of a checklist when you get here. Uh, we'll all participate in this conversation together. That doesn't mean we're, like, wishy-washy about things. It just means we, we are open to the conversation continuing, okay? So this morning, I'm going to give you three large categories of doubts, and then three biblical stories from the Gospels, really just the Gospel of John, where Jesus ran into these same doubts. And so here's the first one. I call it the materialist doubts. The materialist, and you're like, okay, materialist. What do you mean by materialist? And I'm sorry I couldn't come up with an easier term I couldn't come up with it, but materialist, and I know you're thinking right now of like Madonna, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, material girl and all that. And like, well, that's close, you know, because it means that you simply live for the material world, right? You just simply are uh, about facts and science. There is no spiritual, there's nothing beyond, there's nothing, uh, there is no other realm of faith. You're just a fact person. So let's call these material doubts. And these are the science and history questions. It, materialism means I only believe in what I can touch and what I can feel and what I can see with my five senses. The world stops there. 
So there's a large category of doubts that would fall into this. Um, I have a brother who is this, and as a matter of fact, the last time uh, we were driving along in the car, he said to me, he said, Dan, I just can't really buy the whole idea that there's a God out there that started everything. I just, I just can't make that leap. You know, I said, all right, I understand that. I, I have. So, and, you know, we can get into it at that point because I think this type of doubt um, and questioning takes just as much faith uh, and has a reasonableness to it, but it takes just as much faith as the other one, okay? So, here, uh, here we are then, just put things into the calendar. Easter was two weeks ago, and here we are two weeks after Easter, Sunday two weeks after Easter, and likewise, Jesus has now been appearing, if you go back to 30, 33 AD, Jesus has been appearing to his followers. One of the followers <clears throat> that had not encountered Jesus after his resurrection, in other words, after Jesus had risen from the dead, was a man named Thomas, one of the 12 disciples. And we all now call him Doubting Thomas, and you'll see why, of course. Um, and we use the word Doubting Thomas. All I, can, I call them sports center things. If you hear something on sports centers like Hail Mary Pass and Doubting Thomas, it's where theology and religion actually makes it into sports center, and I figure it's just a part of the normal vernacular of how we all think. John, the chapter, tw- chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, if you wanted to look it up, but I'll put some of it up on the screen, but John chapter 20 tells the tale. It's the first day after Jesus' resurrection. It's Sunday evening, okay, the first day of the week. And Jesus appears to several people, and let's just admit it, he's appearing to people, and they are freaking flipping out. They really are. Garrett covered this on Easter about Jesus eating fish. The disciples, 20 years later, are still saying, I don't know how to explain it. The man was eating and drinking and somehow appearing. He had his wounds. They didn't seem to kill him. They didn't cause him pain. Uh, That's about all anybody ever did. So one of the guys, like we said, was Thomas who was not there. But everyone, including Thomas, had probably seen him nailed to a Roman cross and executed. He was dead. When they pierced his side, inside the body cavity, just to get a little graphic here, Already, the, the red blood cells and the serum had already separated. You know, he was dead. Not Bright arterial blood was not squirting out of him, okay, where it could have healed or something like that. It was done, right? They saw that. Thomas misses uh, seeing Jesus. And so here's what we have. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe, John chapter 20. He's a materialist. He's like, I'm going to touch it. I'm going to look at it. Then I'll believe. Okay. Entire another week goes by. It's, it's really a whole week after Jesus rose from the dead. The remaining disciples are all gathered together in the house with the doors shut and locked which John makes sure you know in his gospel. And suddenly Jesus is just standing there. Apparently, with his post-resurrection body, you can teleport. But he's a physical body. It just gets more and more and more mysterious. Peace be to you, Jesus says. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, 
reach out your hands and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. Notice that Thomas does not say, most interesting person who I saw dead. I need to write this down in my notes and do further research. Just like the others, the rest of the disciples and those uh, that just went on and on, there was about 500 or so that had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Thomas flips out and blusters out a confession. My Lord and my God. Thomas goes beyond just admitting that a man was dead and is now alive. Thomas calls Jesus Lord and God. My master, my creator. The one that all the Jews expected. You are it. What does this mean? Does this mean he's master over death? Apparently so. That is a huge admission from somebody who just wanted to see the facts. I would have been fine, actually, had John just recorded that Thomas said, like, well, that's a, th- this is amazing. That, wow. Man, has something shifted in the you know, time-space flux capacitor continuum or something? I mean, has something changed in the universe? Let's wait and see. I would have been happy with that answer. But he can't do that. His materialism turns into a faith confession. Now, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. Well, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, the Bible's going to say this kind of miracle speak. It's the Bible. It's got miracles all over the place, you know, Red Sea dividing, all sorts of things like this. But Jesus recognizes this very fact in Thomas, and the next thing he says, he says this. Well, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me, Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet come to believe. Blessed are those who don't know any, didn't see it firsthand, any of the stuff in the Bible. Didn't see me, didn't put their fingers in my wounds. That's faith, Jesus is saying. And he understands it's going to be difficult. Jesus understood what was going to happen. All those people like us who didn't touch Jesus' wounds would become doubting Thomases. Totally understandable. Now what? Now what? Well, you and I have some work to do then. We have extra work to do beyond Thomas. Thomas just had to meet Jesus. But not us. 2,000 years later, we have other work to do. We've got, use your scholarship. Use your skills. Use your history training. Use your investigative skills. This is where the work's going to have to come in. And you're not alone. Really, since about the 18th century... For about the last 300 years, there has been an all-out scholarly search to find out if the Gospels are real and if all these miracles happened, if Jesus really rose from the dead, if there was actually a virgin conception, all of it's been going on. One of the latest ones and the most authoritative voices these days was a scholar, he died in 2013, was a scholar named Geza Vermesh. Geza Vermesh. He was a Jew. He was also a professional historian and a New Testament scholar. And you're like, well, that's kind of interesting. A Jewish man who's a New Testament scholar. Like, well, you know, get your work where you can, you know, find it. So he's British. He's extremely well respected in biblical realm, in history, and in, of course, philosophy as well. 
He's not a Christian. And as far as we know, he never did become a Christian. Gezer Vermesh concluded, like so many other scholars in the last 80 years who have undertaken this, and he said this, the followers of Jesus believed Jesus was alive after his crucifixion and death. Vermesh, a preeminent scholar, says, the followers of Jesus, we conclude, I conclude, believed that Jesus was alive after his resurrection and death. And Vermesh remains silent. His fellow scholars say, so Geza, what do you make of this? I'm just reporting what I found. No faith confession like doubting Thomas. No, my Lord, my God. But he does conclude that the Gospels are telling the truth about what they purport to say. Okay? The Gospel writers didn't lie, in other words. I wonder what it takes to get unstuck from our historical, fact-based, materialist, science scholar doubts. Because they can be a trap. You can get caged there, you know. You can get stuck there your whole life. About a lot of things. I wish we could all have the advantage that Thomas had. Just see and touch the wounds of Jesus and know beyond the shadow of a doubt. But we cannot. Instead, you and I are going to have to come to some reasonable belief. Not 100% belief. We have to come to some reasonable belief. It has to make more sense to believe than to not believe. I remember uh, when I was getting my master's out in Pasadena, and I happened to be renting a pool shack. Uh, Lori and I were living in a pool shack, you know, uh, behind a mansion up in the mountains. It was really suffering for Jesus. But, um, and the, the retired man who uh, owned the place was a, um, he worked at NASA Jet Propulsion Labs. He was a scientist, brilliant man. He wore an ascot even. I don't know if that makes you brilliant, but he sure looked brilliant. Very distinguished, you know, classic scientist. His hair was snow white and all streaked back. It was like cool. He looked like some sort of, you know, avatar or something. Anyway, and he said to me, standing outside, as we often had theological discussions, he said, you cannot prove the existence of God. To which in one of my snappier moments, I said, and you can't disprove it. And he said, true. Belief needs to be reasonable, just as doubt needs to be reasonable. At least Thomas and Geza Vermesh did their homework. What about us? Well, here's the second large category of doubts. The first one was materialism uh, doubts or materialistic doubts. The second one, I'm sorry, I don't have another snappy term for it. I'm going to call it crisis wounding doubts. Crisis wounding, you know, like wounds, not like the Jesus nail scars, but like psychological type stuff. Crisis wounding, that's my second large category, crisis wounding doubts. These doubts are, are about a belief in God, and they deal with this. How can there be a good and benevolent God or creator, and yet there be so much human, human suffering and evil and disease in the world? The world's in crisis. We are all wounded by it. Tell me how there can be a God with this kind of a world going on. With so much human suffering in the world, how can we say there's a God? 
Why doesn't God do something about our crisis? Gospel of John, chapter 11. It's a longer story, so I'll have to paraphrase it for us and shorten it down. But it involves Jesus, two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their very, very, very sick brother, Lazarus. Okay? That's the players in this story. And what we find is that Jesus is acquainted with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. We don't know why. John never says how. But somehow they all were friends. As a matter of fact, I get the impression that Lazarus is a very popular, well-liked person. There were lots and lots of people at his bedside, uh, religious leaders, uh, important people. Maybe he was wealthy. I don't know. It doesn't say. But Lazarus is a very popular person, and everyone's very upset about his uh, impending death. And sure enough, he dies. Jesus is on his way to see him, and he doesn't get there for four days after his death. You know, you have to walk everywhere you go back then. It's too late. He's been dead for four days. And Martha meets him on the way into town and says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says back to her, well, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, yes, 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 I, I understand, I know. I believe in life after death, and someday my brother Lazarus and all of us will rise from the dead. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Now, you'll find out here in just a second that she still doesn't believe that Lazarus is going to be resuscitated, not resurrected, that's Jesus, because he's just resuscitated, he's brought back to life, but he goes on to die later on, okay? It's a big difference between Lazarus and Jesus in their type of uh, coming back from the dead. Jesus gets to the house, and Sister Mary is there. And Mary says the same thing to Jesus as her sister. If you'd been here, Jesus, my brother would still be alive. I don't know if they're accusing him of dilly-dallying or if you could have stepped it up or if they're just simply lamenting and complaining, saying, had you been here? See, their assumption is that while he was still sick, while Lazarus was still sick, or perhaps just within minutes or hours after his death, somehow Jesus could have healed him. He had to be healable. Four days later, not in anyone's mind that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. Jesus looks around at this very popular person, Lazarus, and everyone's wailing. Everyone's very upset. Four days later, Middle Eastern culture on funerals, by the way. And Jesus begins to weep and cry and joins everyone in their loss. And the Jewish leaders and the rabbis that are there, they begin to whisper and mutter to each other over in the side. And they begin to say, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? I mean, he's a miracle worker. Couldn't he have done it? They're questioning. So they go out because Jesus said, well, show me where he's where he's uh, entombed, where he's lying. 
And they get to the tomb, and Jesus says, roll away the stone. They all gasp. (gasps) No. (laughs) Bad idea. Not only would they all be defiled, because in Jewish culture, you had to stay out of the temple for seven days if you touched anything dead or were around it. Not only that. And that's my phone. Um, Not only that. Not only that, but as the sister said, he will stink. The body will stink, and Jesus insists, and they roll away the stone, and Jesus commands Lazarus to come out, and here he comes, wrapped in his anointed clothing, the cloth, like a mummy kind of a thing. Unwrap him. (laughs) And so they do. See, Martha, Mary, nobody else, the rabbis, nobody thought Jesus could raise Lazarus for real, really, truly, nobody dead for four days. We know this because they just didn't want to roll away the stone. I mean, if Jesus had been there when Lazarus was sick, that's really a different matter, perhaps, in everyone's mind. That's doable in their mind because he cured the blind and other people, he could raise him from the dead, but not four days. Well, what about... 2,000 years, not just four days. What about 2,000 years later? What about now? That's our crisis. That's our doubt. That's our crisis wound. If you wanted Jesus, you could have healed my mom from her diabetes. You could have prevented my dad from having a stroke and hitting the floor and have a massive concussion and be paralyzed on his left side for 22 years. If you wanted Jesus, you could have done that. You could have kept a number of people around here all this past year who've had cancer and disease, and lost, emotional problems, if you wanted Jesus. I got a couple of thoughts about this. First, and I think most important, don't miss the part of the part in the Lazarus story where Jesus wept. I think this is a huge indicator about what kind of God we're dealing with, about who Jesus is. He participates in the sadness, in the grief. I think he participates in the grief of the world. I don't think he's gone fishing and says, I don't care. I think Jesus is weeping for everything that we weep for in the world. Every crisis that goes on, every cancer and every death and everything that's wrong. And in that, he says, I rose from the dead. Evil will be justified. Just as an aside, You won't find that in a scientific evolutionary model. It's not that I have a problem with evolution. I have a problem with what evolution cannot say about evil. We just keep building on the bones and the tragedies of others. And someday, in a bright and glorious future, it's all going to be good for those people, but not us now. What answer does that have to say to cancer? Except like, well, shucks, I guess you're just born in the wrong millennia. But Jesus says... My resurrection from the dead says that evil and every tear will be wiped away and things will be made right, reaching way back to the beginning of human suffering. Jesus wept. I think Jesus weeps more than we do. I don't think we care as much as God does about the tragedy in the world. I think for every child because of drought in Africa, who will die today because of lack of food or clean water? 10,000. 
Jesus weeps. I think for the war in Syria, Jesus weeps. More than us. You see, Jesus told the church and his followers, and I think even humanity, I have given you the power. I have sent my spirit. What are you doing about all of this? And I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, and I don't really care at the moment. Maybe I will second service after you guys yell at me. But, you know, I love sports. Don't get me wrong, but $335 million bucks to renovate the stadiums, right? Cool. It's beautiful. I love it. Next to it, when I read that years ago when we were renovating the stadium, next to it was an article about the uh, inner city blight and problems. I couldn't help but look at the two articles and say, Chiefs Royals, got to love them. But we don't have any money for the inner city. And let me just get a little bombastic here. The money spent on internet pornography and we can't cure cancer. Dude. We have the power. We've been told by Jesus, I cry more than you. What are you doing about it? Maybe we don't care. And God's sitting around saying, hey, hey. Second thought, you want a fair world? I don't think you want a fair world. I don't want a fair world. You know what a fair world says? A fair world says that if you ever accidentally took a paper clip from work, you know, on some papers, if anybody has any paper anymore at work, but if you took home some papers from work and there was a paper clip attached to it, you could be charged criminally for it. It'd be a misdemeanor, but you're going to have a record. That's what a fair world is, just to kind of get extreme about it. You want an absolutely black and white world? where everybody pays for everything they do? Now, let me really get in trouble. You remember a few years ago when ISIS said, hey, thanks, America, for the ammunition? ISIS, because we'd left, you know, ammunition depots over in the Middle East, and then they were taking them over, and we're like, well, we didn't intend that. Like, are we culpable? Are we guilty for some of the things that go on in the world, even though we don't intend it? We, Americans, who use 40% of the world's resources? Good grief, my kids were snickering because I left the electric bill out on the kitchen table yesterday where it showed we use more electricity than our neighbors. Because, you know, the kids aren't here this service. I won't say this next service. But they leave the lights on, right? And it drives me crazy. I remember my dad would sit around and say, all I do is walk around and turn off light switches. And here I am walking around saying, all I do is go around and turn off light switches. You know, and then you do this as a parent. This is really getting dark. Um, you say, someday, when they have their own place, you know where I'm going, right? I'm going to go around, flip on switches all day long. I'm going to leave drinks sitting on the table, no coaster. You know what I mean? All that. <sighs> all right, I'm over it. But maybe some of us are guilty, and we don't want a fair world. We live in a grace-filled world, everyone. God is good to us, better to us than we really deserve. And only the real response to it is is like, then shape up and do something, church. 
transform the world. Stop complaining. Get busy. Third category, last one, therapeutic doubts. Once again, I'm just a master today of having very understandable terms. Materialist, crisis wounding, and now therapeutic doubts. Garrett's over there probably wagging his head saying like, he could have done it easier. Um, (laughs) The last large category, I call it therapeutic doubts because these come really from our own therapy, our own personality, our own our own, or just to put it blunter, our baggage. I didn't want to call them baggage doubts because it's a little too negative, but I can't get over it. In the middle of the day, a woman comes to draw water all alone in Jesus' time. It's significant that this woman comes to draw water in the heat of the day to the well. She doesn't want to be around the other women. You'll find out why. Jesus is sitting at the well. The disciples have gone into town to buy food, and he's still sitting out at the well. He's sitting there. And he asks this woman for a drink because she's getting water and he doesn't have anything to draw the water with. And she says back to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses it says, John puts this in. I didn't put this in. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Don't drink out of the same cup. Talk about, you know, ethnicity and problems, you know, like racism, bigotry, huge She wants to argue with Jesus and get into a theological debate, right? I think she's angry. I think she's walking around angry all the time. Deep inside, she is therapeutically angry. She's got baggage. She doubts Jesus, and Jesus says to her, go call your husband back here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you got that right. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with right now is not your husband. Uh Uh-oh. Well, now she's kind of paying attention. And she says this most, I love it in Scripture where these really obvious things just lay there and it says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. No, duh. <laughs> that makes her take a step back, and she's, but she's not done. She's not giving up. Her baggage is still what she lives with. That's, what she, that's her best tool. The last thing she wants to do is talk to a prophet about her personal life. Okay? So she tries to redirect the conversation back to her religious ethnic debate. Jews versus Samaritans, again, it's her trump card, okay? That's what she's got. They hate each other. Jesus powers up, though, as they begin to discuss discuss this stuff, and he says, look, I'll tell you what. The true worshipers know what's going on, and you guys don't. She relents. She's got nothing on him. And then she does what we all do when we can't win an argument. She says, well, someday, 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 someday God's going to sort it all out. And the Messiah will come, and we'll know who's right and who's wrong. Let's just wait for the Messiah. Uh Uh-oh. And Jesus replies, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. I think Jesus penetrates our baggage. I'm convinced that Jesus heals us inside out. I ponder sometimes if our inner healing isn't far more important than our outer healing. And I know it's hard to hear, you know, if you're going through cancer right now or some disease. But we've been through cancer in our household, and we're not done. You're never done with cancer. And here's what happens. People begin to live deep, rich lives. Tragic 
in need of help. Suffering, yes. But there's something about human suffering, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, people do some deep living when they go through pain. Nobody ever wants it. Nobody, we don't have a program or a class around here on, welcome to suffering, let's give you some. Instead, all we do is get together and tell our story. And we become better through it. Some more than others. That was not me. Some more than others. Somehow, it makes better sense to believe than to doubt at a certain point in life. Somehow, we get there. Somehow, Jesus penetrates our lives, and we are reborn from the inside out. Our baggage, our need for therapy, our materialist doubts, our crisis, our wounds, it's all wrapped together in this thing we call living. And the most beautiful thing is that God, that faraway, distant, prime mover, whatever you want to call it, came and walked among us. My Lord and my God. The woman runs off to town. She doesn't care now anymore about her baggage, that the other women hate her, and that she's living with some guy for who knows how many times she's done that. She doesn't care. She goes back and tells the whole town, you've got to come out to the well and see this guy, Jesus. He told me everything about my life. She was healed from the inside out. She still got all her sin. <laughs> she's still a mess. But she just started drinking real water. You know, everyone, Jesus reveals himself to people. And that's how they find assurance and overcome doubts. You need reasonable faith, you won't have 100% faith. You, you need reasonable doubts, not cheap doubts. I don't think anybody in the church or in Christianity is asking you to check your brain out and just believe with blind faith. I think we have work to do if we have doubts. The worst thing to do would be to go through the life with a couple of things because you read in an article somewhere or you heard Richard Dawkins or some atheist or whatever and you say like, yeah, 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 I don't care about that stuff. That's false living in my opinion. That's cheap. I think what really happens inside of people when they come to faith is they realize that they need to become a child of God. They don't get everything answered. They just simply become sons and daughters of the Most High. They get connected to the universe, this thing called God. And Jesus is the one who makes that clear. You and I have to become sons and daughters of God. And so maybe your pathway to, to God is through this long journey, through the materialist, through the crisis wounding, through your baggage, your therapy. Maybe your path to God is finding the Jesus... Um, who doesn't really care if you've been divorced five times and you sleep around, you're on from the wrong side of the tracks. Maybe this is your morning. Maybe this is your morning because in a, a moment um, we're going to have a story from Derek, which I'll just let that be its own thing. And then we're going to come forward for the Lord's table. And maybe this would be your morning where, where you say, I'm just coming. What you see is what you get. Because the ones who've been Christians around here for 20, 30 years, that's what they're doing. 
Derek. Uh, so my name is Derek Riley, and this is my story. I've been at Lakeland for about 15 years now, and um, the other day Dan messaged me. He said, uh, would you be open to giving my story about doubts? My immediate response was, where do you want me to start? Um, it says everything about my doubts that I was over here making edits uh, as, as his message was going on this morning. Um, but uh, as I thought about it, um, I realized that doubting is... I'm going to move this up. Sorry. I realize that doubting is actively um, part of the work that I do every day. Um, I work as a designer, and I have the luxury of, of having trust from my team and my supervisors to call shots and make decisions um, on ideas that are worth exploring. Um, with every good idea, however, there, there are 50 bad ones. Um, it's part of the process, but it doesn't mean that every day is very pretty. Um, with enough failures, bad ideas turn into thoughts like, am I going to get fired, or am I bad? It's at this tipping point where work life spills into real life, and I confuse the difference between doubts about myself and doubts about God. In the moment, they're all just doubts. Um, my senior year of architecture school, I was working on a 10-week project. I wanted to branch out and try some new concepts I was exploring. By the time I got to my midterm um, with an outside jury, my work wasn't developed enough to make sense beyond anything more than talk. Um, I got reamed during the critique. With five weeks left, I scrapped everything, and I started over with a successful but incredibly safe solution. Several months later, I learned that I could go read all the comments professors left to one another about their students. I didn't know this was a thing that existed. Um, I had no idea what I was going to hear, and I was looking for a good ego boost, so I wanted to check. Most of them didn't amount to much, um, but the professor of my architecture studio just left three simple points. She said, good student, works hard, but is reluctant to take risks. It's since then I've learned to realize that doubt and discovery are two sides of the same coin. Every project I finish, photo I take, thing that I write, always feels like it's just on the brink. And then I have to ask myself, if everything were in its right place, where would that be? Would I be free of doubts? If that were the case, I'd never try any harder than I did the last time. I've kept a journal of thoughts and notes um, for the last several years, and one particular phrase has stuck with me since I first heard it at Youthfront. I heard the phrase, he restores my soul, retranslated as he brings me back. Um, kind of an active sense of a God who's always there. So Psalm 23 would read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He brings me back. And this has become the only reminder that I really need to tell myself. And it was Derek Riley. This is my story. Thanks, Derek. It's hard to do uh, to get it and bear your soul. That's good stuff. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, just as a comment, kind of like last week I made a little comment about this, but we say we proclaim his death. In a sense, what we mean is what his death means. Not just like, yeah, you died. But the fact that he died on behalf of us, in our place, once and for all, that's what we're feeding on. It's just that we use bread and the cup as a symbol to make it real and to make it daily because, you know, food's a daily, multiple daily, multiple times each day thing. That's what we're trying to do. Well, would you stand with me and let's pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. See if you can own this prayer. See if you agree with it. See if this doesn't make your way through your doubts. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith, that Christ has died Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, everyone. Therefore, let us keep the feast, alleluia, the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you, May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.